ASMR episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. If you don't know what ASMR is, look it up on YouTube. My kids troll me with it all the time, and so I wanted to do that so I can show it to them later. I hope you're having a great week. Today, I have an awesome conversation with the co-founders of Code Submit. Code Submit is a SaaS with built-in take-home coding challenges that allow you to identify great candidates using real tasks, not brain teasers. And the married co-founders, Dominic and Tracy, were part of our Tiny Seed Batch two years ago. I think it was 2020. I, I can't even keep it straight anymore. But they made amazing progress during that year. In fact, they 25X'd their MRR during our batch year. And today we dig into how they did that, that moment where they hit what I'm now dubbing the bootstrapper hockey stick, working on a company as a couple, finding the right marketing channel that allowed them to do this. And of course, the recurring segment, how did you know when you had product market fit? So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation. Tracy and Dom, welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks for having us, Rob. Really excited. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. You are the founders of CodeSubmit. It's codesubmit.io. Your H1 is make better hiring decisions with take-home coding challenges. Identify great candidates using real tasks, not brain teasers. So I like to give listeners an idea of the stage you're at. And some folks give out MRR, some give team size, some give, you know, just me, but default alive. Any, anything you're willing to, uh, to share with our listeners to give them an idea of, of your stage? Yeah, sure. So CodeSubmit is a team of about eight. I and Dom are the full-time like folks, but we have quite a few contractors uh, that work for us, some for a very long time. And yeah, so I'd say about, we're about eight people. Yeah. And we're profitable and growing. Yeah, that's true too. Yes, you are growing. You're, I, I have access to your MRR because you're a tiny seed company and you had a bootstrap or hockey stick moment. It's like it's about a year ago and, and we'll get into that. Well, I want to get into that a little later. But for now, I want to find out kind of the obvious question is, why build a platform like CodeSubmit? Was it a problem you were experiencing or something else? Yeah, so initially we built CodeSubmit sort of to scratch our own itch. Um, I was a hiring manager at an early stage tech company in Munich. And Tracy was a um, tech recruiter and then later on joined um, in a more product-focused role. I needed a way of sending take-home challenges to my candidates in my interview process, and um, I just couldn't find a platform that offered the exact type of product I needed. So um, I sat down one weekend and built the very first version together with Tracy and um, with her input from her recruiting process at her company. Yeah, should I t talk about that a little bit? So as a tech recruiter, that's what I was doing when, when Dom and I started CodeSubmit. We had a process that we were using to vet candidates. So it was a pretty early company still. We had about 40 employees and they just raised their Series A. So it's time to hire that for those tech roles. And we were using a process which I think is very similar to a lot of small startups in Europe, very similar to what Dom's process was at his company, where we would have a take-home challenge maybe as step three, two or three in the interview process, you'd have that screening call with a recruiter. Then you'd maybe have like a, another call with one of the hiring managers on the tech team. And they'd ask you if you'd be interested and willing to complete a take-home challenge. And how we were doing that back then was we would create a Google Doc with a prompt 
and we'd send that to them, maybe with some supporting files via email. And then, of course, the tech recruiters are the ones liaising between the candidate and the hiring team. So they would come back with questions and we would not be like technical questions. They would not, we would not be prepared to answer them as the recruiters most of the time. And so we'd have to go back to the hiring manager, ask them, and it was a lot of back and forth and it would take a long time and it was not very convenient for the candidates to submit their assignment in the end. I think I expressed that issue with Dom and he said, hey, you know what, we're experiencing that at our company too. Dom and I had worked on some small, like fun projects before together, but we thought it could be a cool opportunity to try something bigger, see if we could build something for ourselves. And and that's kind of how we got started. Yeah. And, you know, when I first heard the idea, I spoke with you in an interview. It resonated with me because we did the same thing at Drip and we hired maybe 20 something engineers while, while I was there. And it was very similar process. We did both take home and also pair programming. We would, you know, sometimes do that. And I see, I, I actually hadn't remembered, but you have both of those built into the product, right? Yeah. yeah. And the, the issue I always had with the take home stuff is Derek and I would sit down and it's like, well, what tasks do we want to give this person? And then we'd try to think up a challenge. And usually we'd almost pull something real out of the code base, like a real problem, but then we'd simplify it and then we'd send it to him and we would reuse that a few times and then we'd come, have to come up with another one and then Derek would review it. And that was, it was, it was cumbersome. Someone would submit a, whatever, a Ruby file. I don't even remember. Check it into a GitHub repo and then like they come through it and blah, blah, blah. And that, and that's, that's what I was, you know, I was thinking about trying to code in a browser anyways, and as really a non-developer developer these days. Um, I was thinking back to all the presets and all the customizations that I have in my own IDE and not having that, even getting someone else's laptop and trying to code on their laptop, I think could be challenging. But the other interesting thing or the uh, big piece that I was, I've always been intrigued by is you have like a kajillion coding challenges built into it. So I don't have to, as a hiring manager, I don't have to come up with them, right? They're already designed and you have what, 20 languages or something? More. Yeah. Um, today we support over 60, I think it's actually now 65 or more Man. different languages and frameworks uh, with our mm. library. Yeah, this is also definitely one thing where, where we are very different from our competitors. So our competitors focus a lot on the language and algorithmic side of things. And nowadays, most software development is done with frameworks and libraries, and you very rarely will build something completely from scratch. And our coding challenges are focused. We try to simulate the work that the candidate will face at their job as closely as possible. And this includes frameworks. So the majority of our coding challenges actually are framework based. So you will find a JavaScript and React, and you will find Python and Django and Ruby on Rails and all these language and framework combinations on our, on our library. Got it. Cool. So listeners now have a pretty good idea of how the product itself works. The two of you saw this, this problem essentially at your, at your day jobs and said, we want to go build this. So your bootstrappers, most bootstrappers go nights and weekends and they do it until either they can raise a small amount of funding, they can you know, have a spouse who can support them, they can have some money in the bank or whatever. What was that like for you? Yeah. So um, when we started, I was actually doing this tech recruiting job. I was also finishing my master's and Dom was working full time as well. So as I mentioned, we were kind of thinking we'd try something. It was kind of a fun project initially um, to scratch our own itch and see if there was any interest before we would go all in. And we actually ended up working on it for nights and weekends for quite a long time. And it was every night and every weekend once we, we started building do you want to say something about the MVP? Because that's also kind yeah. of interesting. Well, 
so we had a, an MVP yeah. or a very, very early version of the product, um, probably after two or three weeks. So it was the core functionality was for sure there, but it was very ugly. It didn't have, you know, a lot of features that you would expect. There was no login. There was no account creation. Like we would have to set up everything by hand. There was no billing or anything like that. It was really just the the core of the product was how do I get this coding challenge to the candidate in the least with the least amount of friction? And how can I then afterwards assess this, uh, this coding challenge? And this part we had actually done after a very, very short amount of time. And with this initial version, we went out and went to our own companies where we were working full time and pitched it to them, yep. pitched it to companies in our own network. And this is how we got our first four or five customers onboarded onto this crappy product <laughs> that barely worked. Yeah. And then we just yeah burned the midnight oil for the first six to 12 months. Every night after after work, every weekend, every public holiday, we would sit there and make the product better and serve our customers better. And very, very slowly, we got uh, customers on board. Yeah, and that's the, that's the grind that I like to call out on this show, right? That I think some podcasts or some YouTube channels kind of gloss over, the easiness of bootstrapping, the easiness of starting a business. And so, my, I mean, I did the same thing, right? I, I was nights and weekends for three and a half years on different projects. I was slowly able to taper, I was a consultant, so I would taper back my hours and stuff. But it's a lot of work, and I, I do get questions sometimes listeners write in and say, you know, this is hard or it's too hard or I can't find time to do this or I don't have the money to do this. And I always say hard work solves all that, you know, like, like, unfortunately I didn't sleep as much as I would have liked for a couple of years on and off, you know, doing this. And it, it sounds like you all did the same thing for a year plus. And frankly, there's no glory in it. Your friends aren't sitting there like, what an awesome endeavor you're undertaking. Like, cool that you spend every waking moment that we haven't seen you for three months, um, that you can't make it to our dinner parties. You know, everyone's wondering why you're doing this. It's funny to look back now and everyone is very positive and says, congratulations. It's great to hear that you were able to quit your job and do this full time. But back in those days, it was, you're crazy. And, <laughs> you know, so you do have to get through all of that. It's, it's hard um, to say it's easy is disingenuous. I don't think there was anything easy about it. For sure, not easy. Um, I mean, on the other hand, we we, we don't have children sure, yet. Yeah. Um, no real other responsibilities besides our jobs. So we were in this lucky position that we both had well-paying tech jobs that allowed us to go home and spend this uh, time in the evenings to code on our own things. So we were lucky in this in this regard as well. Yeah, and lucky that we did it together because I think it's harder to continue to burn the midnight oil if you have a spouse who is not doing the same and is wondering how long it's going to take before they start seeing some of the benefits of this time. That's right, because if friends don't believe in your idea or friends are upset that you're not going to a dinner party, it's one thing. And, you know, those relationships heal and they're still your friends now, right? But if your spouse doesn't believe it and you get six months down the line, it, it, creates, it creates issues. I've talked about that a lot on this show, for sure, as well as over on Zen Founder, a podcast I do with my wife. That kind of begs the question, you're married and you started a company together. What is that like? I can imagine that having some challenges and that you're working all day together and then you're hanging out at dinner? Are you like talking about work? Does work bleed into everything? And I think I know the answer, but like, has it been a net positive for, for you? Do you think being married or do you think it would be easier if, if you weren't in a relationship starting this company together? So this is actually one of the, the question that people ask, ask us the most is um, how can you work with your spouse and you know, how, how can you 
be so successful working with with your spouse and not be on your each other's throats all the time. And for us, it has been such a positive experience. And for us, the benefits really greatly outweigh the um, disadvantages. The biggest advantage for us is that, as you know, a company is a roller coaster. There's times when it when everything's great and there's times when it's not so great. And in, in those times when it's hard and difficult, we can we, we have it, we together. have each other's yeah. back yeah. and we can um, support motivate each other and when it's great then of course we celebrate together yeah. um it's uh, such a has been such an amazing journey for us yeah i agree i think it's not for every relationship but for us it's it's been amazing the other thing uh, of course that's a huge advantage is it's almost like um, being a solo founder in the sense that the company is owned by the family so dom and i are 50-50 founders and it helps us to align our family goals well when we both have the company goals in mind. So everything feels very aligned um, on the same trajectory. I think it helps helps us plan for the future as well since we work together. And, and rather than two separate families trying to kind of more or less align. So I think that's a huge advantage if, if you can do it, if your relationship works that way. For us, it's only been a benefit, but I think we are a little bit unique that way. This week's sponsor is TrustShoring. TrustShoring helps you find reliable, pre-vetted developers or software development agencies. TrustShoring has helped more than 250 companies to build software products, mostly within the bootstrapped SaaS niche. They offer two main services. There's agency matching, where they help you hire a full service agency for your project without spending months on due diligence. And they also offer IT recruiting, where they help you hire dedicated remote developers, DevOps, and QA folks. If this sounds interesting, book a free no-commitment call with TrustShoring's founder and CEO, Victor Parolnik, whom I've met at several microconfs. Head to TrustShoring.com to find out more and book your call. That's TrustShoring.com. So you're building this product nights and weekends. You're grinding it out. You apply to TinySeed. You get in to the batch. And you were pretty early, you know, you're pretty early at the time. But... The tiny seed money allowed you to go full time in May of 2020 in the midst of COVID. Actually, it's just occurring to me as I'm saying this date. And you continued to like you were making good progress, right? You were growing a little bit, a little bit each month. And then as you got into early 2021, something really clicked. And I referenced it earlier, but it was this bootstrapper hockey stick moment right around February. What changed between, you know, the prior 20 months of, of working on the product, half of that, which was, you know, was full time because you had, you know, you had the, the tiny seed money, but something really changed and your revenue just started ticking up quite quickly. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing that changed for us, that was sort of this catalyst of this hockey stick moment was we realized that the acquisition channel that started to work very well for us was SEO. And um, we started to take SEO very seriously and started to invest double down, invest a lot of time into content marketing, into our SEO rankings. We were lucky that we had Kevin and Pierre on our tiny C calls, scraping, scraping B, yeah. um, and that helped a lot. And yeah, we started to realize that this channel actually um, works well for us. So we sort of doubled down on it, reduced the money we spent on other acquisition channels, or time and money we spent on our acquisition channels, and really focused on SEO. And since then, we had consistently 10 to 15% growth month over month and slowly and steadily climbing to the 
to our next big uh, revenue goal. Yeah. I would also say, um, Rob, you mentioned COVID. CodeSubmit is one of the types of companies being that we are a digital tool for interviews, asynchronous interviews. We offer a couple of different interview types. There are tons of companies that suddenly found themselves in need of an alternative to in-person interviewing with COVID and making that very difficult. So we did benefit a bit from this whole shift into more uh, digital or remote-friendly interview practices. I think our focus on SEO that kind of lined up well to that transition taking place and folks starting to kind of look at these keywords that maybe there wasn't as much traffic going towards before COVID and suddenly we were well positioned to capitalize on that traffic. So it definitely helped us. Some companies were not so lucky, of course, um, when COVID came and we did see like everybody that little dip right after, you know, when everyone's trying to pull back some of their uh, expenses. But in the long run, I think we've definitely benefited from people switching to a more remote friendly or asynchronous interview style. Yeah, and and you have customers like the Air Force, like the U.S. Air Force, Apple, Netflix, Audi. I mean, I these logos are crazy, you know? I mean, really impressive. And that actually leads us right into a recurring startup to the rest of us segment called... When did you know you had product market fit? Yeah, as I mentioned, I think once you started to see a consistent growth, 10, 15, sometimes 20% month over month, that was the moment when we realized, okay, we have what is product market fit. Also, yeah, as you mentioned, these big corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations using our product, even if it's only teams in, in a larger corporation, but still getting through this due diligence process at the Air Force, for example, that sort of gave us confidence that the product is in a state where we yeah, have this um, product product market fit. Yeah, and can pursue customers and logos like that. You know, um, earlier, I'm sure Dom already mentioned our ugly MVP. Uh, that would never have worked for some of our existing customers. But the product definitely reached a maturity at some point where we were getting customers consistently. That month over month growth was consistent and we could consistently mm -hmm. get through that due diligence mm -hmm. or that mm -hmm. procurement process with some of the larger customers, definitely. Yeah, and, and these are customers that we, we did not reach out to them. So mm -hmm. we are terrible at um, cold outreach sales, really, really bad. We had hiring managers from these companies sign up to our platform, try the tool, and you should, typically when this happens, you have a little Slack notification so where we see that new people sign up and then we see a Netflix or we see an Apple uh, person sign up and then, you know, we reach out to them immediately. Like, hey, um, we're the founders. If there's anything we can do to help you get started on the platform, let us know. And in 99% of the times, uh, people reply and they're happy that they have someone on the other side helping them get started on the, yeah. on the platform. And this is how we build a relationship with a very large company being only the two of us and a, a small team. Yeah, and there's different playbooks for growing SaaS. And, you know, I think the Saster Jason Lemkin playbook is it's outbound sales and it's building big sales teams and that's it. And it, that's the note that he used to build several companies to great success. And does it work? It does. It also depends on the space. The inbound playbook is really interesting as well. And I think it's hard, harder to pull off. I think you sometimes have less control of it because you're not just grinding and doing this outbound thing and you're relying on content to rank and you're relying on people to, you know, to find it. But most of the businesses I've ever built, actually all of them were built on inbound. And that's just, the, that was my suite of tools, you know? We did some outbound with Drip. And there was a third party who did it for us as a productized service and 
it broke even at best for us. But there are a lot of spaces. There are also a lot of spaces where both are great. If you can get both inbound and outbound working, like that's an amazing engine, right? But I, you know, I do want like listeners of this show to know that it's not just one note that does these things. You know, maybe if you want to become a unicorn SaaS, it's all outbound and blah, blah, blah. But if you want to build an amazing million, five million, ten million dollar SaaS company, like you can do that with either inbound or outbound. You can do it with affiliate market. You know, there's all these options you have when you don't need to get so big in I need to be a billion dollars in five years. It's like, okay, well I guess you kind of have one playbook probably. But we have amazing options as bootstrappers or mostly bootstrap companies who don't need that just that ravenous growth. For sure. I think that's that's actually really, it sounds so cliche, but it's one of our superpowers that we are so small because there's a couple of advantages that we have here over big VC funded companies is that, for example, we can put our pricing very transparently on the website. People, companies and hiring managers can sign up for our service without having to talk to a sales rep. A lot of people don't want to do that. So they just want to sign up and try the software that's possible with us. Another thing is that we can give a lot of attention to our clients. So I have uh, one funny story. I saw the head of engineering of Techstars signing up for our service and I was online at that moment. So I reached out to him with this little intercom bubble, say, hey, Techstars, you know, I heard about you guys. (laughs) Cool that you sign up. Is there anything I can do to help? He's like, yeah, sure. Let's jump on a call. Jumped on a call with him and they have been customers ever since. So, you know, these are things that things that don't scale but they work really well in this uh, inbound uh, capacity. You know, again, both work, but there's magic in inbound because their people are already warmed and primed and then they're not on the defensive because they're actually interested and they're wanting their their questions answered. So I'm curious, I mean, you've obviously landed on this amazing channel and it's, it's growing for you. You tried a bunch of stuff before that, right? Do you know how many, can you remember how many different marketing approaches or channels that you were trying to work through before you landed on content? Yeah, so we we have done paid ads. We've tried going into forums and and you know trying to kind of looking for communities that maybe could be uh, leads at some point. We actually did at some point even straight up try to go after do the whole cold outbound strategy. I think that's when I imagine. So I'm a first time founder. Dom is not, but for me, that's kind of what I imagines uh, being. I wouldn't say naive or just not aware of all the different ways you can acquire customers in SaaS. I thought it was a sales process. That's also how the companies that I worked for um, in tech found their customers always outbound. So I think we had a couple of, we had quite a few outbound sales strategies. We even early talked to a couple of folks to see if who came from that background sales guys who maybe wanted to also work nights and weekends with us and tried that, that for quite a while. I would say the first six months even, um, because that's also how we got our first customers by out reaching out to our network. But those folks weren't cold. I mean, they were warm. We could establish a relationship with them very easily. We already knew they had our problem that we were trying to solve. So it was a different situation. And, and we disliked the sales, yeah. <laughs> outbound sales process so much that we had to sort of create appointments in our calendar where we Friday in the evening, 7 p.m., we have had like a call in there forever. We still have it, actually. Um, that's from 7 to 9 p.m. where we just cold outreach to people. We would cold outreach to people on LinkedIn that are hiring managers at some companies. And it just didn't work for us. And it also wasn't, it wasn't fun. It didn't work for us. Yeah. It was very demotivating. 
And also time consuming. Yeah, we called it sales happy hour to give it an excited vibe. <laughs> but it, That's funny. it was not fun. And you know what? I think the Tiny Seed Mastermind also really solidified. I did do content very early. Content marketing was something we looked at very early. I like to write. I had a Medium blog. I got lucky with like one of those articles. It, it was luck. I wrote about take homes. It's still very performant. I think it's still a great article, but it wasn't tied to our domain in any way. And we got some views from it. And those people were actually clicking on the link to come over and see. And we actually saw that folks were signing up from that, which was wild because with the outbound mm. sales, it wasn't doing anything for us. And so I think we were already looking at content. We hired one of our contractors who's still um, working with us to this day around that time to kind of help us with our blog. And then uh, we joined Tiny Seed and met Pierre and Kevin, uh, who were also having a lot of success with SEO and content and were in the mastermind with them. And I think they were learning a lot and we were learning a lot. And we very quickly realized that this channel was something we should pursue. And then we started seeing the results from that. So I think that's kind of how we ended up going full all in on SEO. Yeah, I called it out earlier, but Pierre and Kevin are the co-founders of Scraping Bee. And so folks can follow them on Twitter. They're actually transparent with their revenue. They're north of a million ARR now, and they grew really fast uh, also on this on this front of content and SEO. And I want to, you know, I don't, I don't want listeners to take away that, oh, content works and cold outreach doesn't. That's not the point. The point is find what works in your space. You're going to need to experiment based on your product, based on your customers, based on your space, and you're going to find one or more that works eventually, hopefully, assuming you can find product market fit. That's really the takeaway here because there are, look, there are companies that I have invested in and advise that, or just are in the microconf community that cold outreach is amazing for them. And it's the main driver. And there's some that cold outreach and content both work. And that's amazing because now you have two channels that work and you're not, you know, you have diversification. And then there's folks like you where, you know, content and SEO are really a, a main driver of the growth. Yeah. And we still do some paid marketing and I, I refuse to give up on, on, on the paid marketing. So I think it's still ridiculous that you can pay five bucks and appear on the top result in Google over all your competitors that have millions, uh, tens of millions in revenue and funding. And we do get some customers from this. It's just that we, the majority of our customers come from, come from SEO. So as we move towards wrapping up, I want to ask you, as folks who've seen thousands, if not tens of thousands of take-home assignments be sent out and completed, I love to get the idea from founders who do have this broad swath of knowledge in a specific domain. So are there any like big mistakes that you see customers making or either side, really best practices or big mistakes that you see folks making? Yeah. One big mistake that we see is that some companies are trying to use take-home challenges as a filter for their candidates. And the problem is that typically take-home challenges take a longer time to complete. And if you send a candidate a challenge very early on in the process, when they're not really invested in your company yet, they might not be willing to put in the time to complete the challenge for you. There's different ways of, of assessment that, in our opinion, work better in the early stage of the, of the interview process. That's one big mistake. Another big mistake is that take-home challenges are uh, we see some challenges that take way too long to complete, right? Like um, for us, we see that a good ballpark is between two and four hours. That's something that uh, most candidates should be able to comfortably do uh, maybe on a, on a weekend or in the evening. 
a big mistake is that we see is that some companies send out challenges that take weeks or a full week um, to complete. And given that a lot of candidates have a family life that have full-time jobs, it's just it's just uh, impossible for them to complete a challenge that takes such a long amount of time. You should also be ready to invest the time to review these submissions. So if your hiring team is sending out a challenge that's going to take seven days or even a whole weekend, you also have to consider how much longer a long challenge is going to take your hiring team to review it. And they should be prepared to review it and they should be prepared to invest the time to actually look at these submissions if you're going to actually send one out. So there's a whole host of reasons to keep them short, but yeah. candidate friendliness and incentivizing that candidate to actually yeah. continue with your hiring processes yeah. is really important. And one thing that uh, you mentioned, Rob, so when, when you used take-home challenges at your companies, that you would use something that's sort of coming out of your code base that's very close to the to the actual job that the candidate will, will work on, that's already a very, very good sign. We see some companies that use challenges that are so far from the domain that this company is working in, a very, very algorithmic heavy um, things that the candidate will never, ever work on. It, it doesn't make sense to test a candidate for something that they will never work on anyway. So use something that is close to what the candidate will face at the job. So me, when I send them fizzbuzz, that's not the that's not what I should be saying. <laughs> so that's a deep cut there, a deep programming cut. Uh, unless your company does a lot of modulo operandi uh, <laughs> operations, then yeah, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. The trick questions that were popular back in the 80s and 90s at Microsoft and then the, the programming challenges of here's an array of numbers, reorder them in the fastest way. It's like, I, I don't write code. I'm building web apps. Like we, I, I actually was asked questions when I'm like a web developer to do these hardcore algorithmic things. And I, it's like, I can figure this out, but how is this testing how I'm going to be a good fit at your company? You know, this is really just testing, did I study computer science in college and have I seen this before, right? Or did you study uh, lead code or any of these other coding challenge websites for six months prior to mm -hmm. your interviews? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense in most cases. So last question for you today before we wrap, I think you've used the term lifestyle business for your own company. And lifestyle businesses, it's a pejorative term in Silicon Valley, or, or it, I think people take it that way, you know, of like, oh, I, we can't fund that because it's a lifestyle business. And that usually means that the founder is not working very much or that they're just trying to fund their lifestyle. I built lifestyle businesses my whole life. And then that, that's what I wanted to do, right? Was just not work a day job. And essentially you need a lifestyle business. Drip became more than that. And, and it's great. And it was life-changing for me. But I think this whole, these terms, bootstrapping, lifestyle business, like they're kind of, I don't know how important they are or whether they need to kind of just transition out of the lexicon because it, I'm just building an amazing, profitable, mostly bootstrapped business. You know, does it really matter? Like what, what are your thoughts? I've heard you talk about how life-changing your lifestyle business has been. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, sure. So for me, I've been working in uh, companies that are VC funded. I think a lot of founders and especially first time founders imagine their entrepreneurial journey as this meteoric rise. You start, you raise a ton of money, you grind and build this great culture and this great product. And then someday, somewhere down the line, you sell it for millions of dollars and it's life changing and you walk into the sunset. But I think that with that mindset, you lose some of that, the benefit of doing the slow, taking the slower route. Code Submit for Dom and I has, has been life-changing. Uh, we never set out to raise millions of dollars. To this day, we still aren't considering that path. Who knows for the future? Uh, but we 
knew that this was something we wanted to build sustainably. Um, and since it is our family business in a lot of ways, it makes sense for us to pursue this, not just for the company to grow and for the mission, which is very important to us. Like, it's great to see people get hired. I love that about it. But also it's it's a, it's been life-changing for us as a family to grow this company, to have the freedom to pursue our own business, to have the flexibility to travel when we want to, to make our own decisions as executives, to have some creative freedom in how we pursue and build this business. Yeah. So I think, as you said, Rob, the term lifestyle business in the Silicon Valley startup community is almost like a derogatory term. It's like um, this is a bad business. These are founders, you know, they don't want to become a unicorn. It's like it's a bad business. In, in, in my opinion, like for us, it's very important to build a profitable, sustainable business that can sustain and support our lifestyle. And that doesn't mean that we don't have very ambitious goals. I mean, we want to get to the 10 million AR over the next uh, couple of years. This is um, for sure a very ambitious goal for us. We have monthly growth goals that you want to reach and keep. And for us, it's just important that this is a business that down the line can support us, support our employees, be a great place to work for us and also for anyone that joins our company. And I think there is nothing, nothing wrong with that. Thanks so much for joining me today. People can find you at codesubmit.io. Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks, Rob. It's been great. Thanks for having us. And that's a wrap on this episode. I hope you enjoyed Code Submit's story as much as I did. I appreciate you listening every week to the mix of episodes I have. There's an interview here. There's a solo episode there. There's a news roundup there. And I look forward to bringing something back into your ears again next Tuesday morning. 